Greetings and welcome to Stars of Stuff, an astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, I'll talk to you about you, the listener, and I'll cover the news and the planets as usual, talk about how light pollution and apathy are killing amateur astronomy, and then, as always, I'll end with a trivia question. When I first started this podcast, I was under no illusions that it would be a huge overnight success with offers of sponsorships and talk shows. Arguably, I'm a dreamer, but I'm also a realist. So right now, my audience is small, but it seems to be growing slightly with each new episode. How many listeners do I have? Well, it's more than 10, but less than 100. Realistically, it's probably around 36. Don't laugh, you have to start somewhere. Personally, I'm just surprised that 36 people are willing to listen to me ramble and bumble my way through this thing. Part of my day job involves me conducting new hire training, but those guys are paid to show up and pretend to pay attention. You do it for free. So I just wanted to say thank you. I hope that, in the future, the number jumps into the hundreds, then the thousands. Stick with me and you can claim to be one of the first. In the meantime, I'd love to hear from you. I don't know what comments or suggestions you might have. I know, for example, I need to work on the background audio for the podcast opening and close. It's been a little too loud and I'm trying to figure out a quick and easy solution for that. I need to mix the audio properly, but to be honest, that sounds like work to me. Anyway, thanks again. I appreciate it. I'd love to hear from you, and you can email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com. Beyond that, I look forward to speaking to you in the episodes to come. But next time, bring a friend. In a fitting tribute to the farthest flyby ever conducted by a spacecraft, Kuiper Belt Object 2014 MU69 has been officially named Arrokoth, a Native American term meaning sky. With consent from tribal elders and representatives, NASA's New Horizon team, whose spacecraft performed the record-breaking reconnaissance of Arrokoth on January 1st of this year, 4 billion miles from Earth, proposed a name to the International Astronomical Union and Minor Planet Center, the International Authority for Naming Kuiper Belt Objects. The name was announced at a ceremony on November 12th at NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C. Data from the European Space Agency Cluster Mission has provided a recording of the eerie song that Earth sings when it's hit by a solar storm. The song comes from waves that are generated in the Earth's magnetic field by the collision of the storm. The storm itself is the eruption of electrically charged particles from the sun's atmosphere. When the frequencies of these magnetic waves are transformed into audible signals, they give rise to an uncanny song that is more reminiscent of the sound effects from a science fiction movie than from a natural phenomenon. In quiet times, when no solar storm is striking the Earth, the song is lower in pitch and less complex, with one single frequency dominating the oscillation. When a solar storm hits, the frequency of the wave is roughly doubled, with the precise frequency of the resulting waves being dependent upon the strength of the magnetic field in the storm. First map showing the global geology of Saturn's largest moon, Titan, has been completed and fully reveals a dynamic world of dunes, lakes, plains, craters, and other terrains. Titan is the only planetary body in our solar system other than the Earth known to have stable liquid on its surface. But instead of water raining down from clouds and filling lakes and seas as on Earth, on Titan what rains down is methane and ethane, hydrocarbons that we think of as gases but that behave as liquids in Titan's frigid climate. According to planetary geologist David Williams, the Cassini mission revealed that Titan is a geologically active world where hydrocarbons like methane and ethane take the role that water has on Earth. 
These hydrocarbons rain down on the surface, flowing streams and rivers, accumulating lakes and seas, and evaporate into the atmosphere. Lastly, an international study has discovered a star travelling at more than 6 million kilometres per hour through the Milky Way after being flung from the centre of our galaxy by a supermassive black hole. The giant black hole at the centre of the Milky Way, Sagittarius A, has a mass equivalent to more than 4 million suns and the eviction occurred about 5 million years ago, around the time when our ancestors were just learning to walk upright. The star is travelling at a record-breaking speed, 10 times faster than most stars in the Milky Way, including our sun and is moving so fast that it will leave the Milky Way in about 100 million years, never to return. For observers in the United States, Venus and Jupiter are quite the sight in the evening sky. From the 21st to the 25th, you will see the pair shining brightly as Venus gradually catches up to its larger, but fainter, sibling. Look for them about 15 to 20 minutes after sunset, lower over the southwestern horizon. Venus is the brighter planet and appears closer to the horizon. Keep an eye on the pair as Venus will close the gap between them over the intervening nights. The two planets are at their closest on the 24th, when Venus will appear to the lower left of Jupiter. The gap between the planets will widen from the 26th, but the waxing crescent moon will join them on the 28th. By the end of the month, Venus will be well on its way to a close encounter with Saturn. You will see those two planets close together around the 10th of December. The ringed planet can still be seen for a few hours after sunset, also towards the southwest, but while it's higher than both Venus and Jupiter, it's no longer high enough to be worth observing telescopically. That being said, keep an eye on the planet and watch as it gradually sinks towards the sun. It's joined by the waxing crescent moon on the 29th. Both Uranus and Neptune are still excellent targets in the evening sky. Neptune is at its best around 7pm, with Uranus trailing about 3 hours behind. Mars and Mercury can both be found in the pre-dawn twilight. Mars rises first, more than two hours before the Sun, but at magnitude 1.7 it's a relatively faint coppery star passing through the equally faint stars of Virgo, the Virgin. Look out for the waning crescent moon just to its left on the 24th. Mercury doesn't fare much better, but can be glimpsed rising over the southeastern horizon about an hour before sunrise. If you can find Mercury and are familiar with Speaker, the brightest star in Virgo, then Mars appears roughly midway between the two. Mercury will continue to brighten and appears at its best during the last five days of the month. The moon can also be seen in the pre-dawn sky. Starting as a waning crescent on the 21st, it will pass Mars on the 24th before turning new on the 26th. As noted earlier, look out for the waxing crescent moon close to Venus and Jupiter in the evening sky the 28th and then Saturn on the 29th. Lastly, the monocerotid meteor shower reaches its peak on the evening of the 21st and continues through to the early hours of the 22nd. This isn't normally a particularly noteworthy shower, but this year could be an exception. Long story short, the circumstances are right for up to 400 meteors to be seen per hour, but there's a very short window of opportunity. Activity could last for just 15 to 40 minutes, around 4.50am Universal Time on the 22nd. If you're in the UK, Universal Time is the same as Greenwich Mean Time, so you'll need to get up early. However, you should have a good view as the shower's radiant, the point from which the meteors seem to appear, will be above the horizon at that time. For observers in North America, that's 11.50pm Eastern Time, 10.50pm Central, 9.50pm Mountain Time and 8.50pm Pacific Time. Unfortunately, for those on the western half of the continent, the radiant will be low over the southeastern horizon, but there should still be a few meteors worth seeing. You can say what you want about the environmental movement, 
you can have your opinions about whether you feel climate change is real or some vast international conspiracy, but I can guarantee you there's one form of pollution that every astronomer is concerned about, light pollution. Our towns and our cities needlessly spill light out into the night, drowning all but the brightest of stars. From a dark, rural location, you can realistically expect to see thousands of stars with only your eyes. Look at that same sky from the center of a city, and you'll be lucky to see 50. When I first moved to Los Angeles, I remember stepping out onto the balcony of our apartment and feeling my heart and my soul sink. I could count the number of bright stars on one hand. Gone were the days when I would go outside with my telescope in Oklahoma. On those nights, I'd almost always discover something new. I did it by hopping from one star to another, until I came across something I'd never seen before. No such luck here. I couldn't even see many of the stars, much less hop between them. It was immediately apparent I'd need a computerized go-to scope, one that would find the objects for me. I actually felt old, as though I was finally admitting that I could no longer do things for myself and needed help from others to do the most simple things. Over the next few years, I learned to make lemonade from lemons. I decided to write a book about the bright, easy things you could see with a small telescope. I couldn't come up with a clever, witty title for it, so it's literally called Easy Things to See with a Small Telescope. It's done pretty well and for a while I felt better about my situation. When my youngest son was born, I intended to take a break for a year, but unfortunately the situation had gotten worse when I considered returning to the night sky. Our neighbor in the next apartment building has her balcony light on all night. I've seen her out there maybe once over the past few years. Another apartment has strings or lights outside like a permanent memorial to summer nights long gone. I've never seen those neighbors. Meanwhile, the house whose backyard our balcony overlooks is decked out with lights like they're afraid of the dark or scared the light of the stars will somehow harm them. Frankly, every time I look outside, it depresses me. And I don't say that lightly. The bright lights of the city darken my heart. I wish there was a way we could move out of the suburbs and away from the city, but unfortunately, that's not likely to happen for at least another eight years or so. It's like being a goldfish stuck in a dirty bowl. Enough of my self-pity. Besides losing the light of the stars themselves, we're also losing the light of our own galaxy. 80% of Americans are unable to see the Milky Way arcing overhead, a sad reflection of the state of the world we live in. More to the point, I find it a sad reflection of humanity itself. Besides the astronomers, how many people truly care? And what does it matter? We're too busy looking down at our phones rather than up at the sky. We'd rather post pictures of our food on Instagram rather than pictures of the full moon. We're more interested in connecting with absent friends on Facebook than connecting with the universe around us. In many respects, the social networks are having exactly the opposite effect. We spend so much time connecting remotely online with people we hardly know that we distance ourselves from nearby people we should know. How many of us can truly say we know our neighbors? I feel the more we lose sight of the universe, the more insular we become. We're literally losing sight of the bigger picture, and with it, our place in the universe. We see ourselves as a big deal in our own little world, when in reality nothing could be further from the truth in the real world. Ultimately, and I find this truly sad to say, I can see a day when backyard astronomy is, to all intents and purposes, dead. And while light pollution may be the weapon that kills it, human apathy will be the hand that wields the weapon. Thirty years ago we were trying to save the whale. Maybe now's the time to save our stars. This episode's trivia question doesn't come from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book. That being said, it's still available on Amazon and you're welcome to buy it from my author page. In the UK, go to tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk 
in the US, go to tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us. So here's the question. The monocerotid meteor shower appears to originate from the constellation of Monoceros. What creature does the constellation represent? Is it A, a dragon, B, a phoenix, C, a rhinoceros, or D, a unicorn? As always, you'll hear some pretty music for a moment and then I'll give you the answer. Welcome back. The answer to the trivia question is D, a unicorn. A faint constellation, it can be found just to the east of Orion, the hunter, in the winter sky. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, and I hope you did, please subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others, or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. Again, if you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjb-us in the US and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the UK. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you. <laughs>